you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We are just over a week away out of Christmas, and guess what? We're going to preach out of Luke 2 this morning. Because it's a great story. Christmas is a great time for announcements. No, we don't have another announcement. Just to let you know, no new news with us. So I'm just going to talk about announcements. But uh, last night we had our CLF staff Christmas party. And I just it was like a little bit of memory lane because literally at our staff Christmas party last week, last year, is when we announced about Caitlin coming. And so it's just, Christmas is a great time for announcements. And, you know, birth announcements have a special place too because birth announcements... Like, there's so much joy wrapped up in, in birth announcements, right? I mean, there's something like when you post them on Facebook, you see them, there's just like a little bit of, oh, that's, there's an excitement, there's a joy there. And these are actually, for those who haven't seen this, I brought our pictures in from when we announced both Joshua and then also Caitlin. If you can't read the verse, Joshua's holding two arrows, and it says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Psalms 127, 4 and 5. And the reason I did this, it's like, oh, we put time, and Michelle did such a good job with the pictures and putting them together, and it's how cute. But man, there is nothing compared. No Facebook video, post, anything you do will ever really compare with that night 2,000 years ago when angels from heaven came to announce that baby. I mean, there's nothing you can really compare. I mean, what video can you put together? What little, you know, play skit can you put together? What announcement could ever compete with that? Pretty much nothing. So we know the ultimate Facebook post happened with angels 2,000 years ago when he, they came to announce the birth. And no, I'm not going to re-preach Mark's sermon, but it just hit me of how much joy is in birth announcements. And let's read it real quick in Luke chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. Luke chapter 2. We'll start in verse 6. It says, While they were there, the days were, com- talking about Mary and Joseph, the days were complete for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out on the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. So the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. Today in the city of David, there has been been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. If you have have a pen, underline the word joy in verse verse 10, and then Savior in verse 11. We'll come back to those. Verse 12 says, There will be a sign for you. We will find a babe wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the... With the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men whom he is pleased. There's so much joy wrapped up in a birth announcement. And because it doesn't just affect the parents. It doesn't just affect even the family. It affects everybody connected to this family, to this mom who's about to welcome this kid. I mean, we see it even in the word of God. We read about Zacchaeus' prophecy in Luke chapter 1 and the joy that it rings out. We read it in in, uh, the joy of Mary. We read it about the baby boy John, who became John the Baptist. Before he was even born inside the womb of his mother, the baby leaped inside of joy. We read about the angels singing good news of great joy, not just joy, but great joy for all people. We read about the joy of the shepherds that as they left Jesus, what was their response to seeing this baby? 
They walked away glorifying God and praising God in all of what they had just seen. We read about the joy of Simeon and the widow in the temple on Jesus' baby dedication in Luke chapter 2. We read about the joy of the wise men when they saw the star and it followed its Savior. There was so much joy wrapped up in this one child in this one moment in the backwoods of this crazy city called Bethlehem. So much joy and it rippled out through people. And one of the things that it's just, as I began to study this thing of joy, I was amazed at how much. I mean, I've been raised in church, okay? I've known the Bible. I went to Bible college. I've read it a lot, and yet I was still blown away at how much the theme of joy is wrapped up in this entire book. Old Testament, New Testament, you start, just start studying how many times the word joy or rejoice or rejoicing show up because those words are interconnected. How many things that there is joyous about, whether it was festivals or weddings or healings or salvation or, or the kingdom to come. Like there's so many different things about joy. So as I started studying, I'm like, how on earth do we truly get back to what happened with Jesus? And I like word study, so we're going to get into the words of why this happened. But I really, everything for me has to come back to Christ. Christ is the center of the story. It's what he was about. And he came not only to save us, but he came to bring us joy. If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 15 with me this morning. John chapter 15, verse 4. This is Jesus talking to his disciples mere hours before he was to be gone to the cross. So we're talking about the end of his ministry after three years of building relationship with these men. This is right before he leaves, after all the miracles, after all the teaching, Jesus is saying between uh, John 14 and all the way through John 17 is this last words to the disciples. So read it with me. John chapter 15, verse 4. It says, Abide in me, and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. I love it. Everything seems to be about him. My me, abide in me. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And here's the line. These things, all these things we just talked about, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Not a little bit, not partially, but he came to insert his love for the Father into you so that your joy may be complete. And when I, you know, last week when uh, Pastor Mark, when I talked to Pastor Mark about, I just, I feel like God's telling me to do this. This was in the middle of a, a mess going on with my mom in the ER and all this medical stuff and in the middle of chest pains, dealing with anxiety for the past year, looking back going, man, God, what are you doing over the past year? And it just hit me of, Two things, and I'm not even going to address these directly, but just two questions hit me. Why aren't more believers of Christ 
joyful, including me. Why are we not more joyful? As I read John 15, I'm like, he came to bring that our joy may be complete. So why are believers not more joyful? And then how do we find joy in the midst of the pain of the fallen world? And those were the two thoughts that went into this study of joy when we get into the Word of God. And I'm going, God, I don't have the answers to this. Why are one in five Americans dealing with depression? And trust me, the stats in church mirror the stats of the world. Okay? So why, if we look around the room, why is one-fifth of our church dealing in depression when Christ came to give us full, complete joy? Why? So that was the mindset going behind this, because I know that Christ came to bring joy. And don't get me wrong. First, let me remind you, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is a very powerful verse or a chapter when we read it, reminding us there are seasons for everything. Season for laughter, season for mourning, season for birth, season for death. There's all these different seasons. So we know that we're not talking about a happiness that we feel that is circumstantial in the moment. We're talking about a deep underlying joy underneath everything that can carry us through all the way. Hebrews chapter 12, we'll talk about it in a little bit. There was joy that compelled Christ to go to the cross. How could you face such torment and yet still be joyful? So what does the Bible really talk about in joy? So I want to really kind of break down, okay, why? Let's talk about the joy that the angels proclaim. Because we're going to talk about Jesus, right? We're having Jesus as the central. So what is the word? of joy used in Luke chapter 2, because I think words mean everything. I don't think words are uh, just thrown around. I think it's not just about how we talk. It's the actual words that we say. So what are the words? It was the word in Luke chapter 2 is a word called kara or chara, whatever, uh, you know, it depends on how English your Greek is. And John's not here to correct me, so we're going to go with it. But it simply means joy. Okay, it's all it means. Like, it translation, there is no other translation for this word besides joy. I've looked up three different dictionaries for it, and literally the only word for it is joy. But let me tell you one thing that this word is not. Actually, two things. There's two different words used that sometimes joy in our Bibles that are not this word that we're talking about in Luke chapter 2. And there's two different words. One means cheerfulness. This is the, the joy that you feel when you see a baby for the first time, when you go to a wedding and you're dancing around, this is more of the happiness that you're feeling in the moment or a completeness when you're doing a job that you love and there's, there's happiness and there's, there's a completeness, there's a cheerfulness inside. That's not the joy that we're talking about in Luke chapter 2 or in John 15 because those two are the same word. And the other thing, this is not, this is not a ex exaltation. This is not a worship, a joyful worship before God. That's also not the joy that we're talking about. There are times that in reaction to into who God is, what he's done in the moment, that we will say rejoice unto the Lord. That is not the word we're talking about in Luke chapter 2. So I want to make sure that we're separating. We're not talking about a happiness, a circumstantial joy or a happiness in the moment or a cheerfulness. And we're really not even talking about joy as in this worship and exuberant that you sing joy to the Lord. While those things are also amazing and good and God has designed us to experience those things, that's not specifically the joy we're talking about that was pronounced by the angels in Luke 2 or that Jesus talked about in the John chapter 15. And why is this important? Because those other two things are circumstantial. 
They're subjective many times. They're a feeling. They're emotionally driven. And the joy that the angels came to talk about is not the same kind of joy. It's not the same kind of joy that we try to gin up with loud worship music in our car as we're driving down the road. This is a deeper, a more meaningful, a joy that you can hold on to in the middle of trials and circumstances. So let's get into the Word of God a little bit of where this word joy was used and who used it. I'm going to focus really on the New Testament because this is, this is the Old Testament and the New Testament. This word kara is, is, is used more in much at great, great length more in the New Testament than the Old. And it was incredible when I started studying it. It was more of a the joy used in the Old Testament that we're talking about was a more anticipation versus the joy that we're talking about here is more in-depth of a personal experience, which is just cool, because what's the difference between the Old and New Testament? The Christ has come, right? All right, so let's get into it. Acts chapter 13. The joy we're talking about brings with it a confidence so that we can stand in the midst of persecution like Paul and still be filled with joy. Acts chapter 13 says... But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with a joy, filled with joy, not just a little bit, filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And this is the joy that Paul writes about again in Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 15. 818 actually alludes to this joy when it says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Again in 1417, Paul writes, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Read that with me. But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. James says in chapter 1, it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So where does the joy come from? Galatians 5 tells us the fruit of the Spirit is Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Again, in Hebrews chapter 12, and I really want to think about this for a second. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for who the joy, the joy set before him enduring the cross. Would anybody else look at the cross and go, this is joyful. None of us do that with the trials that we face, do we? So why did Jesus have joy set before him and endured the cross? And yet we so many times make excuses for our lack of joy because of our circumstances and trials. So we try to gin it up. Okay, anyways. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So, where on earth does this joy come from? What is it about? And why do we struggle so bad getting it inside of us when we're going through so much? 
We love this time of the year because there's something magical about the Christmas season. We seem to be able to gin up the joy. Why? Let's read. Let's go back to Luke chapter 2. Where does this joy come from? Why was Paul able to be joyful? What drove Jesus to the cross to endure so much shame for joy? Why? Luke chapter 2, verse 10 and 11 says, Do not be afraid. This is the angel saying to the shepherds. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. And he told you exactly what the joy is all about. For today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So what is our joy? We have a Savior! Either one thing, you're either still asleep, or that is way underwhelming to you. We have a Savior. We have a Savior. We have someone who came to set us free from the slavery of sin and death that overwhelms us. We have a Savior. And let me tell you, more than likely, if that underwhelms you, you're lacking joy in your life. Because that right there is the joy that we're seeking and searching for. It comes from that simple truth. A Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. So the joy you're searching for can't be found in your favorite worship song. The joy that you want and desire can't be found by giving your kid a gift and seeing the happiness on their face. The true joy that's going to get inside of us that will pull us through those times and those circumstances that are overwhelming is the simple fact that we have a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So where's the disconnect? If we know this as believers, if we have surrendered our life to God, if we have asked his forgiveness, you go, God, why am I not experiencing this? Why, am I, why is there a disconnect of where I'm feeling in the middle of my circumstances and what I'm reading here? Has anybody else felt that frustration? Like I read what the joy of the Lord is supposed to be. I read about the salvation that he brings. I read about the freedom that he brings. I read about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I read about it. When Why is the disconnect in me and this word? Maybe I'm alone in that. But as I dug in, and as I dug in, as I studied, three words kept coming back to my mind over and over again, and it's something that Mark inserted into my brain months and months and months ago, and he's alluded to it since then. And if you're taking notes, and even if you're not, I want you to find something and write this on your hand. Guilt, grace, gratitude, joy. Guilt, Grace, gratitude, joy. Because see, here's the thing. If we are missing the joy that God promised us, if we are missing the joy that was proclaimed from the angels of heaven saying, this is for all you people. It didn't say for all of the heavens. It said for all people here on earth, me, you. He said this joy is for all of people. Then why are we disconnect? Why are we missing it? It's more than likely it's coming back to these four things because there's a disconnect in this process of guilt, grace, and gratitude. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes so beautifully this conflict, primarily between guilt and grace. And then he comes through in Philippians and talks about gratitude. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 10. It says, And you, say me. Say me. This you he's talking about is you and me. So when you read this, think me. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too were all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging, excuse me, in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, say, but God. But God is through some of the two most powerful words in this Bible. You and me were this, but God. And those two words are an intersection between frustration and joy, between loneliness and fulfillment. There is an intersection with two words, but God. And there's a connection between guilt and grace that leads us to a life of gratitude. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, not wounded, dead, Nothing dead can bring itself back to life. Dead. He did this. This was the work of Christ who came that we celebrate in Luke chapter 2. We celebrate with Christmas. He came because we were dead. We weren't wounded. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead. But he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, another conjunction here, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. Whose grace? His grace. Not a deserved, not a grace that you've earned. His grace, right? His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, whose grace? His grace. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, or masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Do you know why we don't hear a lot about grace, or excuse me, about uh, guilt and transgressions and unrighteousness and slavery to sin? Why do we not talk about guilt? Well, because probably because it makes people feel guilty. We don't like to make people feel guilty. I mean, does anybody like to make people feel guilty? Of course not. And we don't like to make ourselves feel guilty either. So we make this comparison game to where we were before Christ to where other people were. And you know, I wasn't that bad. And so we start actually thinking and thinking that we weren't that bad. So all of a sudden, we look to God more as a, God, I'm not that bad. I don't need that much help. So would you help me in these areas that I, I don't, you know, all these other things I'm pretty good at. So we start supplementing God, making our already okay life even better. Losing the idea and the fact that we were dead in our trespasses. It has nothing to do with how good you are. 
the simple fact that you were born into this creation means that you are a slave to sin. Whether that sin is a pride, murder, you know, lust, greed, all of these are not the problem. The problem is we have a sin nature. These are all symptoms of a disease that is inside of us. So we can't look at other people and go, man, well, their disease is a little further along than mine, so I'm not as bad. No, you still have the same disease. You still have the same sickness that is bringing you down, that is killing you. And there's the only cure to that disease is Jesus Christ and His grace. And when we start losing and we start walking around as lepers thinking we're not that bad, we start losing the fact that we really need a Savior at all. Why is that important? Because you were dead. And when you start thinking that you you don't need a Savior, that you're not that bad, all of a sudden God is no longer the Prince of Peace, the one who sets you free, so you can't live in gratitude because you're believing more in yourself than you are the Savior who shed his blood 2,000 years ago. And I love being popular. We have to have a clear picture of grace. When you read through the New Testament, there's no getting around the simple fact that we were dead in our trespasses and we needed a Savior. And that's why the angel said, we have good news of great joy. Great joy, not a little bit. This is great joy. There's no other word that they could say and go, what? Really great joy? Like they were making this. This is not just a simple thing. This is great joy to talk about here. Why? Because you're dead in your trespasses. I'm dead. And he came to make us alive in himself. What kind of joy should that rile up in us? What kind of joy should that change in us? Grace changes everything. It is God and his love and his mercy. What it's... uh, Grace, a lot of people use it, it's thinking of it as an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. By grace you have been saved. Whose grace? His grace. Not earned, not deserved. His grace. Why am I hammering this home? Because we have a disconnect in the church today thinking that it's about our goodness. I come to God so I need to read the Bible, I need to pray, I need to do all these things because that's how I can grow closer to God. You're missing the point. You can come to God only by His grace. We can't earn it with how much scripture we read, with how much scripture we memorize, of how many groups we go to, of how many great Bible verses we memorize. We cannot earn anything from God by doing anything, only through surrendering. His Grace alone has given us freedom from our sinful nature. And here's what you need to understand. That war with the sinful nature is still present in every single disciple of Christ. He set us free from it, so we're no longer a slave. But according to, when you look at Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, Paul admits himself there's still a war inside with this sinful nature that tries to take over. That's why we need things. That's why we need to stay in the Bible. That's why we need to do that, because we still have that sinful nature. And God has given us his word and says, when you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will bear much fruit. In those moments, that's how your joy will be complete. When we stop trying to earn God's grace by the things we do in church. 
If there's a disconnect in you, if you feel like, man, I'm reading my Bible, I'm memorizing it, I'm doing all these things, and yet I still don't feel close to God, I'm still missing this joy, well, maybe it's because you're trying to earn joy. But it's not about us earning joy. It's about His joy in us so that our joy may be complete. What did He say? Flip back to John chapter 15. What did He say? His words. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11, 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. So whose joy is in us that makes it full? It's his joy. It's his grace working in us. We're the vessels. We don't deserve his grace. We don't deserve his mercy. We deserve death, hell, and the grave. But Christ paid that 2,000 years ago. And so the angels went, we have good news of great joy for you. You no longer have to pay the penalty of sin. You no longer have to live in slavery to sin. You have a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And too many times when we have a disconnect of joy, it's because we look to ourselves for that grace trying to earn something that was paid for 2,000 years ago. It is not of yourself, according to Ephesians. It is a gift of God. We have to understand guilt. We have to understand the grace that only comes from Christ. We cannot look to the Word of God. We cannot look to our church. We cannot look to our one another groups as a supplement to make our good lives a little better. When we try to supplement, use God as a supplement, I mean, what are you doing? Hey, you're dying of cancer. Take some, you know, B12. You'll be good. Now we need a cure to this disease that is rotting away who we are. And Christ came and the angels proclaimed, you have, we have some good news today. The heavens are at a loss, but you have good news. The king has come and he's come to give you joy So the only answer for the fallenness of our guilt and sin is God's grace. The only rational and acceptable response to God's grace is gratitude. Turn with your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You know, one reason I think joy comes in the Christmas season is one of the only seasons of the entire year where we actually don't focus on ourselves, We start focusing on other people. Verse Thessalonians chapter 5. I love this passage. Love it. Have you ever wondered what's God's will for me? Who's ever wondered what's God's will for me? Wouldn't you love to live in God's will? Wouldn't you love to live in God's will? Well, guess what? Let's read God's will. You ready? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 16 says, Rejoice always. Rejoice when? Always. We have bad days, right? Are we supposed to rejoice in bad days? And by the way, this word rejoice is also a twin to the word joy, just to let you know. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing and in everything. Say everything. 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 In everything. Give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What's God's will for you? 
Give thanks in everything. Give thanks in your finals that are finally over. Give thanks in a miscarriage. Give thanks when the doctor calls and says, it's cancer, you need to start leukemia immediately. Give thanks as anxiety takes over your mind. Give thanks when your kid calls and said, I'm okay, but the car's not in great shape. Give thanks when a judge says, you're going to have to be there for the next nine months. How do you do that? You've got to understand guilt. You have to understand where your grace comes from. And then you have to give thanks and live in a life of gratitude because this life will pass away. In the middle of the chaos and the disaster of sin and the wreckage that sin leaves on earth, we have a hope in the grace of God that goes beyond this world. And the only way to hold on to the joy that the angels proclaimed and talked about is understanding where our true joy comes from. And it comes from the fact that we have a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He has come to set you free. And in that freedom is life eternal with Him for all of eternity. That is the joy that we have to hold on to. But what does that look like? My wife is always on me about sermons. And when I talk to her about stuff, what does that look like in your life? What does that look like? Here's what it looks like. Giving thanks in every circumstance. Do you have a gratitude list? Do you wake up in the morning and start listing the things that you're thankful for? In the middle of an anxiety attack, do you list the things you're thankful for? What are we doing on a daily basis to live and thankful? Carl Barth, I love this quote. He says, grace, grace always demands the answer of gratitude. Grace and gratitude belong together like heaven and earth. Grace evokes gratitude like the voice of an echo. And I love this line. Grace follows, or excuse me, gratitude follows grace like thunder, lightning. It's like when you see lightning, what do you know is coming? Thunder. When we see and know grace, there's only one true response to an understanding and experience of that grace, and it's gratitude. And as gratitude follows grace, so so joy follows gratitude. If we truly want... Let me ask you a question. How many joyful people do you really know? How many many really joyful people do you know? Can you think of one? If you can think of one, let me ask you a question. Are those people also grateful? Are they a thankful person? And let me ask you a question. When you feel, feel, remember feelings are subjective, so we shouldn't be trusted anyways, but when you have a longing for joy and you feel down, you feel depressed, do you also feel thankful? Of course not. How do we fight those depression? How do we fight this lack of joy in our life as we understand and live in a life of gratitude? Why? For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
As a father wants its absolute best for his son or daughter, your God wants what's best for you, and he understands the only thing, the fullness that he talked about in John chapter 15, the fullness of joy that that the angels proclaimed in in Luke chapter 2. God knew that this can only come through when you, in everything, you give thanks. You rejoice in the Lord always. You give thanks. Philippians chapter 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Are we living that way? Because God told us to. Why did he tell us to? Because he knew that the only way to experience the fullness of joy that your heart desires is to live in a life of gratitude. And when we get frustrated with our Bible reading, when we get frustrated with our doing, when we get frustrated at this and that, I guarantee there is a void of gratitude in us. He has saved us. He has redeemed us. He has set us free. And our response to him is a fully surrendered, thankful life. So when's the last time we just sat down and we thank God for his grace? Because we remember who we were. You know, being raised in church, I'll be honest, this is actually can be harder being raised in church my whole life than I feel like it is for some people. But then again, that's probably my arrogance thought anyways. Why? Because the enemy loves to tell me, man, you were raised in church, you weren't that bad, you weren't on the streets, you weren't getting arrested. It doesn't change the fact that my sinful nature had a hold on me and I was a slave to sin and I now I know that only it is by God's grace that I'm not on the streets. It is by God's grace only that I am not in those things and addicted to those things and in that lifestyle. And so that knowing that and keeping that in front of me allows me to live in gratitude. God, thank you. I know that it is only by your grace. I'm not good enough not to be an addict. But by God's grace, I have a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And now I have good news of great joy for all the people because what God has done in my life he can do for you he already has done for you it's up to you to accept it and receive it because it's a gift he's already given it 2,000 years ago Christ has already died it's paid for it's done he's given you this gift but it's up to you to open it and to receive it and make it and apply it to our lives so how do we respond again what does this look like practically let's go back to John chapter 15 What does it look like? The first thing is this, and this is how we need to respond. We have to abide in Christ and his love. If we want true joy in our life, we have to abide in him. Christ said, abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Me. Verse 7. You abide in me, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. We have to abide in Christ. Well, what does abide mean? Abide means obey, observe, follow, to keep, to hold, to conform to, to accept, and act in accordance with a rule, a decision, or a recommendation. God doesn't call them recommendations. He calls them commands, first of all. But are we abiding in his word? Say the first thing we can do is know his word. Know his commands. But are we abiding in Christ? Do we know his commands? Are we flooding his soul with his, or are we flooding our minds and our soul with his word? Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
David says, I have hidden your word in my heart. When you hide something, you make it so deep and so covered up that nothing else can find it, nothing else can steal it, nothing else can do anything to it. It's hidden. You are, are you hiding God's word? What does it mean to abide in him? It is getting in his word and hiding it as deep as you can so that no trial, no man's opinion can ever shake or steal that away from you. We have to abide in his word. Second thing we have to do is we have to renew our minds. Romans 12, 2, Paul writes, Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Philippians 4, chapter, or, uh, chapter 4, verses 6 through 8 says, Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. It's not up there. Let's go two verses before that. Philippians 4, 4. What does he say? Mark said it this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men, for the Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell, dwell, Abide, sit, ponder, meditate, dwell in these things. So here's my question. What are you renewing your mind with on a daily basis? This idea of guilt, grace, and gratitude. Are we allowing that mindset, really what it is, guilt, grace, gratitude? You know another way to say that? The gospel. We're sinful. God came, died, His grace. Now our response is living in gratitude. So we can apply that mindset to all of these things. How do we abide in his word? When we see his word, are we thinking and looking, going, who am I? Well, I'm fallen. Who is God? It's his grace. Now, when we talk about renewing our minds, are we renewing our minds with things that reinforce the gospel? Are we? Who's program? You understand, like, our minds are giant hard, our hard drives, right? They just receive and download all of this stuff. Who's, who are you downloading from? If we are lacking in joy, if we are lacking in peace, let's first of all take an honest examination of who is renewing our minds. What's going in? Who's, who's, who's our influences? Who do you listen to? Who do you watch? Who do you hang around? We all know these things, but let's just be honest. When we finally get to the point where the lack of joy, peace, and contentment in us is so uncomfortable, we'll take some honest looks at ourselves and go, what changes do I really need to make? Because we can justify any and everything, okay? But if we take an honest look at ourselves through God's Word and renewing our minds, who am I allowing to program me, or am I allowing God's Word to renew my mind? And I'm telling you, I'm challenging you this. These three words, guilt, grace, gratitude, take those before God this week and say, God, renew my mind in this. Help me see things I have never had before. And this is what I want to tell you. Be lethal. Be cerebral. I mean, be, be lethal with how you protect your mind. Guard your mind. Guard your eyes. You read it all through Proverbs, the importance of guarding your mind and your heart. Pay attention. If you're lacking joy in your life, I'm not talking about happiness, joy, pay attention. 
Chris will tell you a story. He's not here, so I get to tell it for him. Years and years ago, when we lived together, um, when we first started going to this church about six years ago, he was he would have really bad dreams. I mean, just nightmares that he would wake up from. And these were regular, not just a one-time thing. They were pretty regular. And so he went, he took his own advice, went to a spiritual counselor, which happened to be my mom at the time, said, I'm having all these dreams. I don't know what's going on. And, you know, I... I don't know what's going on, you know, so what do, I need, what do you think I need to do? And my mom asked him, he said, are you, what, are you, what are you doing before bed? What are you doing? He's like, well, you know, every other night I'll probably, I'll probably sit down and watch The Walking Dead for a couple times. And She said, oh, that's funny because, you know, I don't, I don't really watch that, and I don't, I don't have any trouble with nightmares at night. We laugh, but honestly, how many things in our life do we allow in, and we're not realizing it's there to steal our joy? Even if it's looking at other people's Facebook pictures, looking at their vacations, and going, I wish that was me. And we're pulling the discontentment out and living in discontentment because we're comparing our life with somebody else. I know none of y'all have ever done that. I'm not saying, I'm not pointing a finger at anybody, okay? I'm not going there. But honestly, each one of us fight against things in our life to try to steal our joy, okay? And just understand, this world has gotten really good at distracting us. The enemy has been at this for thousands of years. He knows human nature a lot better than we do, and he knows how to tempt and distract the people of God. And I challenge you, if you're lacking in that deep-seated joy, Start renewing your mind in Christ, going, man, I've got to cut this out. I've got, I mean, I've got to be lethal with protecting my mind and surrounding my mind with truth. All right, enough on my soapbox. Michael, you guys can come on back. The last one is this. Live in unity. John 15, starting in verse 12. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves. Why? For the slave does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you. Who chose you? He did. I chose you and appointed to you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. For this I command to you, that you love one another. There is such power in loving and living in unity in God's body. True fruit. If we want to bear fruit, if we want to have joy, I'm telling you guys, we have got to work our tails off with living in unity of one another. Well, what does that look like here? What does that look like at CLF? What does this look like in my family? Philippians chapter 2. He says, make my, what, what, what does he say? My joy. Say that with me. Joy. Say it again. Joy. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Why do we have begin, belong, become on hoodies? Because that is our purpose. 
at CLF to help people begin a loving relationship with Christ, belong to an authentic community, and become everything that God has called you to be in the world. Do nothing, not some things, nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourself. And do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. We are so easily wrapped up in ourselves, are we not? What's going on in our life, what our struggles are, what our trials are, and yet Paul goes, don't, don't. Pay attention just to yourself. Look out. Don't just merely look out for your own personal interest, but look out also for the interest of others. Putting aside selfish ambition. How do you do that? How do you do that when your trials and your situations are so real and so in front of your face? When you're overwhelming, when the doctor's reports come in, when there's no money in the bank account, how do you look and go, I'm not worried about myself. Let me worry about you. I'm losing sleep at night. I can't sleep because my marriage is in shambles, but let me really focus on you and your problems. How do we do that? We understand the guilt of who we were before Christ. We understand the grace of what he has done for us and who he has made us into be and the freedom and the new life we have in Christ. And we live in gratitude of that. And we go, God's already set me free. What is an empty bank account when I have this king of the universe who died and loved me and promised me he would never leave me, never forsake me. His grace has set me free from a slavery of sin and death. Why do I need to worry about money? I'm just thankful he loves me and he died for me and he takes care of me. He's going to take care of me. But you need to hear God's going to take care of you too. And when we start living that way and we start building unity because we're concerned, more concerned with what other people are going through than what we're going through, God's joy is made complete in you. Guilt, grace. Our only response is gratitude. And in the process, God brings his joy. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I love you so much for who you are. I worship you, God. God, I thank you that 2,000 years ago, a Savior was born. A Savior has come who is the Messiah, who is the Christ the Lord, who died on a cross for my sins, who has paid my penalty and brought me salvation and freedom and life everlasting. God, I thank you for that. Father, help us live in that gratitude of what you've done for us. God, we're living so far below what you have called us to. We are children of God, set free by the blood of the Lamb. And you have called us to full joy, life everlasting, abundant life, God. God, teach us how to live in an attitude of gratitude, Father. Remind us, God, by your spirit, by your word of who we were and the, the grace that you have offered us through Christ. Father, teach us in everything, at all times, to live in gratitude, to rejoice in what God has done in who he is and the fact that we have an advocate for the Father who has promised to never leave us, never forsake us. If God is for us, who can be against us? 
We thank You for Your grace today, Lord God. We worship You, Jesus.